Our first scripture reading is from John 16, and I'll read verses 5 to 15. John 16. Verse 5. Verse 5. But now, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. That's especially that verse 13 that the Holy Spirit would guide the church into all the truth that uh, is important for our purposes this afternoon. As we will be looking at Westminster, the Westminster Confession in chapter 1, but first we'll read our text, and uh, that is from Psalm 25, verses 4 to 12. Psalm 25, verses 4 to 12, the text for the sermon. And then I'll read from the Westminster. Make me know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy compassion and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to thy loving kindness, remember thou me, for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, 
Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. And then from the Westminster Confession, still in chapter 1 on the doctrine of Scripture, and articles 2 through to 5, which you can find in your bulletin. And I won't uh, read the whole of Article 2, that is, I won't list all of the books of the Bible. I trust you heard of them before and hopefully you read them all at some point as well. If not now, then before too much longer. We know, learn the whole counsel of God, but I will read parts of that article and then the other um, three articles there. Article 2. Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these, and then they're listed, and also for the New Testament... And then this final comment in Article 2, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. Article 3, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. Article 4. The authority of the Holy Scriptures, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. And Article 5, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts that we may receive instruction, that we may do so with humble hearts and in the fear of your holy name. Would you remove whatever impediments might otherwise hinder us from learning from you again today? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, sometimes it's necessary for the church to state the obvious. And uh, this has happened a few times in our synods 
For example, uh, many moons ago, uh, before my time in the Reformed Churches of New Zealand, uh, there was a synodical statement made about what our churches believe on the doctrine of creation. Not because the church needed to invent a, a doctrine of creation or to settle that once and for all in the eyes of everybody, but because it was being challenged. The doctrine was being challenged and accusations were being made about what the Reformed churches actually believed on the subject. And so our churches made a pronouncement that we, as the Reformed churches of New Zealand, uh, are firmly convinced that God made the world as we read in Genesis, in that uh, more or less literal way that we read in Genesis, and not by means of theistic evolution or something of that kind. And in a somewhat similar fashion, the church was called upon in early days of the, uh, after the end of the New Testament to make statements about which books belonged in the Bible. And this is a process, making that decision, which was a, a debate that raged over some time, or raged, it went over some time, with some different opinions being expressed by different church fathers. And that went on for a couple of centuries before finally in 397 AD at the Third Council of Carthage, the church made an official decision that these books that we now have in our Bibles today, that those same books, the ones listed in the Westminster here, uh, that they are the ones that belong in the Bible, that are the true word of God. And they rejected some other contenders for that, that some people were putting forward. And so it was something that the church had to state at the time because it was being challenged, especially by heretics. And a number of those wanted to chop out an awful lot of the Bible because the teaching of those books didn't suit their heresies. So they wanted to get rid of it. This uh, process of the church deciding on or, or agreeing on which books belonged in the Bible is known as the process of canonization. And you might have noticed as we read the Westminster that word canon did occur there, uh, as also uh, what it means, the word rule. What is the rule of our faith and life? The rule is these books. This Bible with these particular books that make it up in Old and New Testament. That is our standard or rule or canon of faith and life. Hence, it's called canonization. And that's something that these articles here are looking at from different angles, uh, talking about the Apocrypha, the ones they rejected, uh, talking about the evidences that they used as they weighed up the different books, that process of canonization. And that is something that uh, we can get some insight into as we look also and primarily here at Psalm 25, which is a psalm that talks about God instructing his people and how he does that, what that means and what God's promise means that he instructs his people and what that has to do with the process of canonization. That's what we'll be looking at under two headings. First of all, the Lord instructs sinners in his ways and secondly, the ground of our certainty in this. So what it means, the Lord's promise to instruct sinners and secondly, the ground of our certainty that he does so. In the first place then, David repeatedly asks the Lord to instruct him. And especially here in verses 4 to 7, 
He says this in several different ways. It's a strong emphasis. He says to the Lord, make me know your ways. He asks the Lord, teach me your paths. Uh, Lead me in your truth and teach me. So there's that repeated request here for instruction. But David not only asks for instruction, he also, under inspiration, assures us that the Lord does do just that. He does instruct his people. And David therefore has certainty that that prayer will be answered. And we see that especially in verses 8 to 12. The assurance, he instructs sinners in the way. He teaches the humble his way. He will instruct him in the way he should choose. That kind of language. So there's a request for instruction. There's a promise that God instructs his people. How does he do so? How does he answer those requests? Not only for David, but also when we pray in a similar way. Uh, How does the Lord instruct and teach us? And in answer to that, there there are several aspects to that question. First, there is what we might call his instruction manual, the Bible, the Word of God. If we are to choose the way that we should go, we need to know objectively what that way is. And more than that, we not only need to be told how to live, but in connection with that, we also need to be taught and instructed about who God is who is pleased by this manner of life and what works he has done to enable us to receive that instruction and, in fact, to walk in that way. So we need objective teaching in those things. We need to have all the necessary information about those truths. In other words, we need a word that is sufficient so that we can receive proper instruction And we need it in a form that is infallible, it can't be wrong, and inerrant, it has no errors. A word of God, not just a word of fallible men. And so the men who who wrote the various books of the Bible needed to be inspired. They needed God's spirit, they needed God to breathe out his word and they needed to receive that work of the Holy Spirit that enabled them to write those things down so that that word would be exactly what God wanted it to be, without contradiction or without compromise. Because if we didn't have that, then we wouldn't be able to be sure of anything in here if it was just a word of men, not inspired. Moreover, what is also needed, the Lord's guidance so that the right inspired books would be the ones that would be gathered together and put into a whole Bible so that we didn't have a mixture of things in here, say, for example, apocryphal books. We didn't have some mixture where some of it was from God and some of it not. So that process also needed to be guided by God. That process of canonization in which the church recognized which books were the true standard of faith and life. So these two things that were needed for us to have that reliable instruction, we needed inspiration, the breathing out of God's truth and providence of God uh, so governing 
the decisions of the church and the circumstances of the men who, who uh, uh, made these decisions so that we ended up with a Bible that we can fully rely upon. However, instruction and guidance in the Lord's ways requires something else, something in addition to that. The Lord calls on those he instructs in the word to make choices in life. Verse 12, he will instruct him in the way he should choose. We're not just given some ultimatum in the Bible and then forced by God to walk in that way. We are taught to understand that as far as we can and then to apply God's word and to use it to make right choices in life with God's help. Now, you could give me a manual on how to fix a car, but uh, most likely that wouldn't do me personally too much good. I would uh, have trouble even knowing which way is up, both in the manual and in the car. Uh, So you can have a manual, but you need to be able to understand what it is that you're reading. And you see, the problem is that we are a sinful people by nature. And we need to be taught by God himself how to read this uh, infallible and authoritative word, this inerrant word. Our sin needs to be dealt with so that we can do that. And so you notice in this Psalm 25 that along with that repeated request for instruction and guarantee that God is going to instruct, in between all that, you have David's confession, in verse 7 especially, that David admits that he has a a long history of sinning from, from youth on, the sins of youth, and of course it went through into old age as well. His iniquity is very great, he says, verse 11. And therefore, he makes this comment in verse 8 that God instructs sinners in the way. He doesn't instruct people who can naturally and in their own strength pick up the Bible and understand it and apply it. He needs to instruct sinners so that they can deal with what they have here before them. And we, we need that too because of our sinful nature. The Lord's instruction and guidance must therefore include work on the subjects who receive the objective instruction manual. And in order for that to take place, God sent his son to accomplish our deliverance from the guilt and the condemnation of sin, but also from the power of sin. And he sent his spirit to give us a new nature, the new birth, and his spirit to give us the gift of faith so that we can receive and believe what we find here in God's Word. The Spirit also, as He ministers to us as we go on in the Christian life, continues to shed the light of God's Word into our minds and our hearts so that we grow in what we we read here, that process of illumination, as we call it. And the Spirit works sanctification in us so that we learn progressively to apply God's Word Uh, more and more as we go through life in in our various circumstances. The Lord deals this way with all who humble themselves before him and before his word, verse 8. He deals this way with those who fear the Lord, verse 12. And he keeps on dealing with this way 
with those who keep his covenant and testimonies, verse 10, rather than turning to rebellion and apostasy. Uh, One more thing that is part of this whole picture too, that the Lord, uh, he arranges our lives as individuals in his providence so that we gain access to that word. Not everybody does that. There are people in this world who, don't, who know virtually nothing about the Bible. But in God's providence, we here have had this great privilege that we were born into a Christian home, many of us, most of us, and grew up being taught the Word of God and having it explained to us by our parents or our grandparents, learning it in the Christian school, learning it in the church, sitting under the preaching and the ministry of God's Word twice every week. And that is a privilege that perhaps we take for granted. But it is an enormous privilege that God has dealt thus with us in his providence. And on top of that, he also surrounds us by people who uh, share what they know of God's word, who uh, also encourage us when we are discouraged and maybe tending to stray, who admonish us when we need to be admonished. And he sends affliction to us in his providence so that we may learn to lean upon him and his word more. And he sends consequences from our sins, sometimes to our shame. And all of this, this whole process of things that takes place in his providence, all of that conspires, according to God's plan, to bring us back to his word again and again and to teach us to apply it more and more. And if we didn't have all of that, right through from the inspiration of God's word to the providential governing of the church's processes of putting it all together into one Bible, canonization, to the sending of his spirit to give us that ability to understand the word and the setting up of circumstances in our lives so that we actually do get to read the Bible and hear it preached and so on. If we didn't have all of that, then even if we did somehow get hold of a Bible, we would be like a a student who's uh, not really with it in the classroom. And uh, any of those who have taught uh, children in any way at all in home or school or in catechism class uh, know very well what it's like to have someone there who's not with it at the time, who's off with the fairies, as we say. And uh, so they're not with it. They're hearing the instruction with their ears, but they're not getting it. It's all Greek to them. And the Bible would be all Greek. Of course, the New Testament is in Greek, but it would be all Greek to us if we didn't have this whole package of things that God does to instruct his people. When you look at it that way, you see how how ultimately and utterly dependent we are on the Lord, both for having an objective instruction manual and for the tuning of our hearts to to receive that word and to believe that word and to apply that word subjectively. It's all a work of grace. It's all by God's initiative. It is his work which we don't deserve and not our work. And that's why David in verse 4 says, Make me know your ways, O Lord, because we can't make ourselves known. We can't teach or lead ourselves into the knowledge and understanding of Scripture. 
And once we have begun to learn that, that dependency continues. It's not a a once-off thing and then after that we're on our own and we're able to do that, handle God's word correctly by ourselves. David says, for you I wait all the day. He He recognized an ongoing dependency on God in which he waits in dependency and hope for the Lord to keep on instructing him and keep on enabling him to apply that instruction. And so it is important that we ask the Lord and do so regularly. And I say regular because if you read through Scripture looking for this, you read through the Psalms alone looking for this, and this is something that comes back again and again and again through Scripture, this prayer to God to instruct, to enable us to understand. And if the writers of the Scripture under inspiration saw the need for that, then so should we so that we don't just leave it to the minister to pray for the illumination, the opening of our eyes when Scripture is read and preached about twice on Sunday. That's important, but that each one of us does the same thing at home, praying both for what happens on Sunday and also what happens every time you open your own Bibles at home to read and meditate on it. Pray for instruction with a humble heart in the fear of the Lord, with a desire to know and keep his covenant and his testimonies because you utterly depend upon him for that instruction. Now, the reason for this emphasis on our dependency on the Lord, the reason why I'm drawing attention to that now, will, I trust, become evident in the second and final point, the ground for our certainty in this. On what basis? Can we be sure that we will be and are being instructed? On what basis can we know and be sure that this book is reliable in its instruction? Well, if we are so dependent on the Lord that our certainty must come, if we're so dependent on the Lord, we're utterly dependent on being instructed, then we should understand that our certainty must come primarily from him and not from our own efforts or our own arguments. Note the basis on which David appeals to the Lord to teach him and the basis on which he states especially the assurance that God will instruct him. And that basis is not anything in David. The basis is actually God's own character. What makes David so sure the Lord will instruct him? What makes him sure that uh, he can make that request for guidance and have it answered? First, the fact that the Lord is good and upright. Verse 8. Upright means uh, straight or level. Uh, It means that when God acts or when God speaks, he is completely on the level and what he says is straight. It is the straight truth. And this, as I say, is reflected in all of his works and also in his word. He is also good and upright with sinners and demonstrates his goodness and uprightness by instructing the sinners in that which is good and upright itself, his good and upright ways. And so in verse 7, David 
praise, remember me for your goodness sake. So this is part of David's confidence. He knows he will be, that God will remember him and instruct him because God is good and upright and that also determines the character of his word as reliable because the word is good and upright. Then also, David recognises that the certainty of that instruction from the, what he says about God's merciful nature. God is compassionate and loving-kind, which means uh, gracious and merciful. He always has been of, from of old. In other words, he has been and always will be, verses 6 and 7. And this too is reflected in his ways and paths as revealed in his word. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness, verse 10. And so David asks the Lord to remember him not only in truth but also in his loving kindness. And it's on this basis that he can also state that God is the God of my salvation, verse 5. So this too, the mercy of God, his determination to save the people, this too guarantees that he will instruct his people for that very salvation and in that very salvation. Then he is also the God of truth, who is truth. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Verse 10. And since all God's ways are truth, His word is therefore also true and reliable and he keeps his word with perfect faithfulness. Okay, so what does all this have to do with the Westminster Confession? Chapter 1, Articles 2 to 5, which are mostly around that subject of canonization. Well, David is saying in Psalm 25 that God's own character is the primary assurance both that the word of God itself is reliable and that God will successfully instruct his people in it. The word must be true because God is truth. It must be righteous and good because God is good and upright. And the word must be applied in such a way that it helps and saves sinners because God is merciful and compassionate and loving kind. If the Bible were not true, or if the church were allowed to mess it up in assembling the different parts into one Bible, or if the Holy Spirit did not enable us to receive instruction from the Word, then these attributes of God and the promises that spring from them would be thwarted. God would be left with an ignorant people. He would be left with an uninstructed people which could not be, because God has said otherwise, promised otherwise, according to these attributes which cannot change. The Westminster Confession takes a rather similar approach to explaining the canonization process, in which the church accepted the books of the Bible that we now know and rejected others like the Apocrypha as being uninspired with that uh, outcome in Carthage, as I mentioned, in 397. But note that the Westminster Confession in Article 4 says that the authority of the Scripture does not depend 
on the testimony of men or of the church. The authority of the Scripture does not depend on Carthage 397. No, the authority of Scripture depends wholly on God who is truth itself, as we saw in Psalm 25, the God of truth. Similarly, while we can use many arguments about how we perceive the excellencies of the Bible, and uh, I dare say that at certain times, if you haven't had this experience already, you will have this time where you're talking with an unbeliever and where you get talking about the nature of the Bible and where you get challenged on it. And uh, perhaps your unbelieving friend will say to you, or relative, whoever it is, a workmate, will say to you, but the Bible's a human book. It's been written by men, and men always make mistakes. It's been assembled by a church that was biased and sneakily removed all the bits that they didn't like, those men at that time, and then doctored the rest so that it kind of fits together the way it does. Or the Bible's full of contradictions, historical inaccuracies and so on. And how are you going to respond to that? And how did the church respond? On what basis did the church look at these different books and say, this is from God, this is what we put in the Bible and nothing else? Well, the early church did look at some of the things here that are described in the Westminster in Article 5 as uh, the excellencies of the Bible. The early church looked at some of those things when they accepted some books and rejected others. They looked at the consistency of the different contenders. They looked at whether they had connections, these writings to the apostles or the prophets, or whether their claim to have been written by such and such an apostle was actually false. They looked at those kind of things. They uh, looked at the subject matter and so on to decide whether a book was legitimate or not. But Article 5 makes this important point that the full assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority does not come from these things. It does not come from our arguments and how we perceive the excellencies of Scripture, but it comes from the witness of God Himself. He is the great witness to the character of His own Word. His witness comes through what the Word of God says itself about the Word of God. That is God's testimony to His own writings in the Scripture. And His witness also comes from His Holy Spirit, who then says to us internally, uh, as we read the Bible, this is the Word of God. That's God's own witness, and it's a greater witness than any of the arguments of men. You know, uh, sometimes people speculate about the meaning of uh, books. Just in the secular world, they speculate about the meaning of certain books. Critics write a lot. Uh, I remember, remember reading some years ago somebody's speculation about uh, Tolkien's book, uh, Lord of the Rings and Secret Meanings of that kind of thing. So you get a lot of this stuff in critical circles, evaluating some book, uh, fiction or otherwise, and evaluating it and saying what the critics think of it. But surely the best one to know what he meant is the author. That's even so in a secular sense. What I'm saying is the church did not 
create the Bible by its decisions nor by its interpretations. Rather, it accepted what the author of the Bible said himself, his interpretation and what he said was truly the word of God. And uh, that was done then by the work of word and spirit as God instructed his church so that they recognised what belonged in the Bible and what didn't and helping them also to interpret that. And that is why Carthage ended up accepting only the books that the church had always recognised from the first uh, circulation of those books and accepted no more, no other books than those that the church had always recognised as the word of God and no less because God promised that he would instruct his people by his word, Psalm 25, and he promised that his spirit, when the Lord Jesus poured his spirit out, that his spirit would guide the church into recognising all of the truth, John 16, verse 13. Now, as I say, you will probably sooner or later end up in a debate with unbelievers about these kind of things. And it is okay, as the Westminster, uh, Westminster Confession is pointing out, and as the early church did as well, it is okay to talk about the consistency of the Bible and the historical accuracy and to defend the Bible as far as we're able using those kind of arguments. That is acceptable. But just remember, you can easily get bogged down in endless arguments over such things. As soon as you answer one objection, there's another one. You answer that one and there's another one and another and another. Because the real problem is the unbeliever's blind eyes and hard heart. And those eyes can only be made to see and the heart of stone can only be turned to a heart of flesh by the operation of word and spirit, the two great witnesses. And therefore, whatever else you say in defence of the Bible, and that's okay, that's fine, whatever else you say, don't forget to proclaim the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone to your unbelieving friends. Don't get so bogged down in those arguments about whether uh, the New Testament is historically accurate or the Old Testament, or even those arguments about science and Genesis. Don't get so bogged down in those things that you forget to tell people, your unbelieving friends, the gospel. And to pray that the great witness will use that gospel, will use the word itself to those whom he has chosen to call, instructing them in his ways, just as he is instructing you through word and spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to give a, a good account of the nature of your word and its perfections when we have opportunity to do so. We pray that you will help us to think about these things and perhaps to study them so that we're able to give a good account when called upon to do so and don't uh, flounder uh, not knowing how to answer any objections. 
whether these come from genuine inquirers or from the attacks of skeptics. But Father, help us also to keep before us that great and vital need for your witness through the word itself and with the work of your Holy Spirit, if a sinner will ever be able to receive your word and believe it. And we thank you, Father, that you have enabled us to receive it, to accept it, to believe it, and now to work also on applying it. We thank you for this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, to me, thy ways make known. Another one of those many requests in the Psalms, as I mentioned, to be instructed from Psalter Hymnal 46. We'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology, number 46.
After the blessing is our doxology. We sing again from Psalter Hymn 135, but this time the last stanza, stanza four. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>